Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're uh, we're running a rerun here today. We haven't run a, a repeat episode in quite a while, but uh, this is one that uh, came out, I think, in August of last year. We really enjoyed it. It's a uh, it's a very engaging, perfect, perfectly uh, suitable stuff to blow your mind topic. And it mentions fruit trees, which is basically <laughs> the thing I like more than anything else. Fruit trees, yeah. yeah. Well, as long as we get a fruit tree in there, we're good. So here we go. Let's enter the world of the Echo Borg. <laughs> I want to take you into the future here for a minute. I want you to imagine this scenario. You've been contacted by an artificial intelligence, an AI that identifies itself only as Mind Your Manners or MIM. And MIM has a wonderful job opportunity for you. It needs an Echo Borg as it attends an industry conference uh, related to the corporation it had. In other words, it needs to augment a human with a non-invasive sensory array so as to use them as its living avatar. Hold on a second. This sounds like a creepy job. Now, (laughs) what exactly does this job involve? Essentially... MIM is going to speak into your ears through this sensory array. It's going to pick up on everything going around in your surroundings. And uh, you will repeat or shadow its words in conversation with various uh, unaugmented humans throughout the week at this conference. So you're going to be its mouth, its face, its every expression as MIM attends several key meetings and networks with industry leaders. You will be the human mask for all its interactions. Now, you'll, of course, be required to sign a standard non-disclosure agreement. And as MIM's schedule for the conference is fairly rigorous, you're going to be swapping out duties for the week with a second Echo Borg selected for more casual interactions. But this is a huge opportunity for you. AIs like MIM are known to establish a harem of Echo Bots, each suited to a particular culture or setting. This could be your big break. You could become the pampered meat suit of a powerful machine brain. Yes, and it's a, you know a great gig if you can get it you know yeah now i'm sure that this job while it might be physically demanding is it probably doesn't require all that much skill right so you just have to be able to repeat words pretty much in real time and give some convincing facial expressions and hand gestures yeah you would need to bring life to its words to a certain extent i mean that's part of being the mask like one one example that comes to mind of course is uh, arrested development they had the uh, the uh, um, the surrogate character that shows up uh, while uh, uh, George Senior is under house arrest. So uh-huh. it's this this character with just a ball cap with a video camera on it, and he gives a very deadpan version of everything that George is saying. And in that, he would be he would be a terrible echo Borg or Cyronoid, as we're going to discuss. Uh, ideally, the individual repeating the computer's words would would make it make the words come alive. Okay, so what we're envisioning here is sort of the exact opposite of what certain sci-fi writers have predicted with robot avatars. Right. The idea of a robot avatar like in the movie Avatar, you could probably say, mm-hmm. although I don't know if that's a robot. I don't know. It, it's in plenty of sci-fi. You you hook your brain up to a computer and through the computer you control the actions and words and deeds all of the outward motion of some kind of physical embodiment that's not really your body 
Yeah, like I've seen it employed as a possibility for space exploration, right? It's yeah. too much for us to send a hum- delicate human body to this other world, but you send a robot and then bap, make that robot the avatar for the human explorer. Which is great for space exploration because it combines the sort of reactiveness and ingenuity of the human mind with the hardiness of a robot body and the hardiness and expendability, let's be frank, mm-hmm. of the robot body. Um, so, yeah, so what we're envisioning here is the exact opposite, a computer mind controlling your body. Yes, I mean, a computer using a human is kind of a meat puppet uh, to uh, to give life to its, uh, its voice and its will in human interactions. All right, so you mentioned the term serenoid a minute ago, and I'm going to assume, actually I don't need to assume because I know, that comes from Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes, Cyrano de Bergerac... 1897 Edmund Rostin play. A lot of people may be familiar with this, of course, from the the Steve Martin movie Roxanne, which mm-hmm. was a retelling of the same story. Uh, my first introduction to Cyrano was the Wishbone episode <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, peek behind the curtain. Robert did not know what Wishbone was. Oh, no, and I, I had to explain it to him. I, I don't know how I missed this. It sounds delightful. Now, who did, who did the dog play? Which character? I, I think it was Cyrano. Okay. Right. So the dog, if you're not familiar with this story, Cyrano de Bergerac is based on a real-life character from history, but in the play, it's sort of dramatized, fictionalized, made more exciting. And the idea is that he is a very ugly man with a big nose, Mm -hmm. so he has a hard time wooing women, but he's also very clever and brave. He has a great mind in the wrong kind of body. Okay. But if he teams up with somebody who's very handsome and very stupid, (laughs) together they make the perfect package... So all he needs to do is get a handsome man to parrot every single word he tells him, and there you've got the perfect suitor. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's, and it's often played for for comedy, right? Because you, especially in Arrested Development, you end up with uh, with signals getting crossed. Uh, you know, the the individual uh, who is uh, who is informing the surrogate mm-hmm. says something uh, that's not intended to be transmitted, and it ends up transmitted, and then all sorts of hilarity ensues. Yeah, I think it's played for comedy in the mm-hmm. Rustin play also. But uh, but it raises some interesting questions about how we perceive other people uh, and how we perceive the the will behind other people. Yeah, well, one thing that I think is certainly true is that people are very sensitive to the outwardly visible source of information, oftentimes more than they are sensitive to the content of the information. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody's making an argument to you, it's very likely that you're judging the merits of that argument more on what the person looks like and what their voice sounds like than the actual merits of the arguments they're making. And indeed, you have just a whole communication array that is delivering this information. I mean, it's it's the voice. It's also uh, often the hands of the individual, the body right. language, the expressions, the micro expressions, the eye contact. All of the uh, all of these features yeah. that uh, add that that additional level of engagement to any sort of information. Yeah, the quality of the tuxedo. Yeah, and so. This connects in a strange way with a question that has often come up in artificial intelligence, Mm. which is the idea of the Turing test. And I think the way it relates is if you are the tuxedo, if you're the meat tuxedo Mm -hmm. for an artificial intelligence speaking through you, does that in any way influence how people receive the messages coming from an artificial intelligence? So we should probably explain a little bit the idea of the Turing test for people who aren't familiar. This is a standard 
often referred to concept in in the progress of artificial intelligence. And it comes from the uh, computer scientist and sort of AI pioneer Alan Turing. And there's no actual one Turing test. Right. You can't buy the kit online and bring it bring it home and just start employing it against every toaster in your vicinity. Right. It's more of a general concept that's been applied in a lot of ways. And the most basic stripped down version of the test is can a human chatting through text only tell if the person they're chatting with is a real human being or a computer program designed to talk like a real human being. Yeah, I mean, it basically comes down to uh, to, to Turing's uh, insistence that uh, uh, the question of whether a machine can think is is too meaningless to really waste time on. So you have to instead think, well, am I am I buying it? Am I am I fooled by it? If it is, if it is creating the the semblance of intelligence and and it deceives me, then. That's what we need to look for. Exactly right. And I think I largely agree with the point he's making, because how can you tell that other humans possess real intelligence? (laughs) I mean, come up with a way of explaining how you know other humans really think. You say, well, I mean, listen to the way they talk. Look at the way they react to what I say. Uh, It's a very complex kind of reaction. Well, what if you could have a computer or robot that does all of the same things? Then would that not be thinking? I mean, all we have to go by in science is externally measurable phenomena. You can't get inside someone else's sentience and judge whether or not they're thinking by, I don't know, just sort of like your phenomenal intuition. <laughs> I think it's in Terry Pratchett's The Hogfather, where there's a um, essentially a thinking machine that's used by the uh, the wizards there, and uh, and and one, somebody asks uh, the, the wizard uh, using the machine if it if the machine thinks for itself, and uh, and he says uh, says oh no it just it just appears makes the has the appearance of thinking for itself, and yeah. the, the other character says oh well it's just like everyone else then, uh, right, right yeah if you want to be a solipsist you could say well I'm actually the only object in the entire universe that thinks and I'm just surrounded by very convincing artificial intelligences. Yeah, I mean, as we discussed in our alien episode that we did recently, it's the, when you start trying to, it's, it's hard enough for us to, to decide and, and, and quantify what human consciousness is, what intelligence is, and when we start looking for artificial versions of it, uh, it becomes difficult. So you have to have some sort of standard to say, all right, this is, this is enough, and that's yeah. what the Turing test sets out to do. Right. It's the idea, not can computers think, but can they convincingly appear to think? Yeah. And of course, this shows up in a lot of science fiction. I believe it, uh, it, it, uh, it's in Blade Runner. It's been a while since I've seen Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. But, um, more recently, um, in, uh, Ex Machina. Oh, yeah. I just saw that movie and maybe we should talk about that later in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I'll go ahead and give my endorsement now. I thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very, uh, very engaging film. I recommend it to anyone who is, uh, who's a listener to the show. Okay. But let's describe a Turing test scenario. Like I said, there's no one test, uh, but lots of people try to put together some kind of Turing test type scenario to test their chatbot to see how good it is. Yeah, and a chatbot is just a, a, a program that you have a conversation with. Yeah. If you've ever engaged, if you've ever been in a website and that little, you know, text screen comes up and there's some sort of little, uh, uh, you know, stock art of an individual you might be talking to one of these chatterbots. Yeah, yeah. So let's paint a little picture. Okay. Let's say you walk into a mostly empty warehouse, and right in the center of the warehouse is a card table and a folding chair and a computer terminal. Okay. And you go and you sit down at the terminal, 
and there's a little blinking cursor, and you type hello, and it responds hello back. And then you type some more things, and it types some more things back to you, and you get to talk to it for some length of time. It yeah. was pre-specified. Maybe you talk to it for five minutes. Maybe you talk to it for 20 minutes. But at the end of the session, it's your job to say, now, what was I just interacting with? Was that a computer program or was that a person sitting at a terminal like mine in the warehouse next door? Mm-hmm. These days, most of the time, I think it's still going to be pretty easy to tell, especially if you have a limited amount of time to interact. And if the chatbot program operates within some kind of, I don't know, borderline cheating kind of, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of conditions, like some of these bots, might suggest they have a conversational limitation. Like, oh, I'm a real person who is a child from another country and I don't natively speak your language. Right. That makes it a little easier to be convincing. Or you could say that you suffer from some kind of condition that makes you interact socially in a different way than most people would. Mm-hmm. And in any of these cases, you're sort of like putting dampeners on our judgment. You're saying like, oh, okay, I shouldn't be expecting somebody who interacts just like anybody I would meet, you know, at work or at a party or something like that. This person might very well be a human and still be acting kind of strange. But once you say, okay, you can talk for four hours (laughs) and this is just, you know, a regular person who doesn't have any kind of limitations on their conversation, you, you, you'll pretty much always be able to tell these days, I would say. Yeah, and, you know, and a lot of this is going to, um, you know, at least start off as just small talk, you know. Yeah. Like, like you were saying, hello, what's your name? What do you, what, what, what do you, what, uh, what's your favorite, uh, band? You know, that sort yeah. of thing. And then, uh, the, the, uh, the, the AI, or, or the attempted in AI, the chatterbot, uh, attempts to answer those in a way to fool you into thinking it's a real person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, let's go ahead and just, uh, Roll through a, a short script from a chatterbot conversation. Yeah, uh, so we'll reveal the source of this in a bit. But, hi, Robert. What kind of movies do you like? Um, historical. I prefer modern era films. Great. What are your favorites? My favorite movie so far is The Imitation Game. It's about my idol, Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. What did you like most about it? I like fruit trees. Were there lots of fruit trees in the movie? Maybe we can talk about that later. Okay. Shall I continue with gardening, or do you want me to move on? You can move on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think it's pretty obvious um, who is the uh, the chatterbot in that uh, conversation. Yeah, so I was the chatterbot there. That was coming from a chatbot named Rose, which was created by Bruce Wilcox and documented, that was verbatim a transcript of a video produced by some researchers that we're going to talk about in a minute. But there's a variation on that script we just read, mm-hmm. because in the video, that didn't take place at a text terminal. All the lines that both of us said were spoken out loud by human beings. Now, how could that be? Well, that's going to tie into the concept of Echo Borgs, which we brought up at the beginning. So to get into Echo Borgs, we need to talk about a, a favorite figure in the weird history of psychological research in the United States, and that's Stanley Milgram. Yes, Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. 
1933 through 1984, best known for his uh, controversial obedience experiments, actually a series of uh, social uh, psychology experiments, about 19 in all, conducted by Milgram in the 1960s. Yeah, you probably have heard about these. Yeah. If you're familiar with Milgram, it's probably from the, they're often just called the Milgram experiments, and they sort of give him a bad name. Because they were they were kind of nasty. Yeah, they're they're generally anytime you see a list of like you know top ten scariest or weirdest or most evil psychological experiments, they tend they tend to throw this one in. Though uh, you know it's it's really more troubling in what it reveals about uh, about human human nature. Yeah. So what was the deal? Well, it's important to note that the first one of these took place in 1961, just three months after the start of the trial of German Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, and so Milgram wanted to see just how far we'd go in the name of obeying an authority figure. Of course, of course the, because the whole argument is, are, are these bad people or are they just simply following right. orders? Right. It was the idea that the Germans are especially evil. Were the, were the people who became the you know guards at Auschwitz just from birth truly evil people who were susceptible to that kind of behavior? Or would we behave the same way in the same circumstances? So, yeah, the experiment revolved around you know an individual in a room... And you hear the sounds of someone being shocked in the next room whenever that individual pushes a button, pulls a lever, whatever, uh, on the command of an authority figure. And yeah. so the question is, how far will you go? To, to When will you stop shocking? Would you ever stop shocking that individual in the next room if an authority figure is telling you to do it and telling you that it's okay? Yeah, and what Milgram claimed to find through his experiments is, yeah, even you know your regular people, your next-door neighbor Americans, if they've got somebody in a white lab coat who's supposedly in charge of the experiment saying, please continue shocking them, they've agreed to this in advance, lots of people will continue shocking even after the supposed victim of the shocking. Now, we should say that in this experiment, nobody was actually Yeah, nobody's actually electrocuted in the next room. Yeah, there were actors pretending to be in, in immense pain from these shocks mm-hmm. uh, that lots of people in the experiment would supposedly continue shocking them. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about that the, that series of experiments and what uh, some of the, the ramifications of it, uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind did an episode earlier in the year titled The Power of Polite, and I'll make sure to link to that on the landing page for this episode. But uh, Stanley Milgram also uh, had some other experiments going on. Right, he wasn't just doing the shocking people and Nazi experiments. Yeah, he was into other ways to, <laughs> make, to, to make us feel a bit troubled about our humanity. Were they all creepy? Did he specialize only in creepy science? Uh, no, I think he had some less creepy ones. You know, I mean, you know, they involve how we. Uh, I think most of his work re- revolved around how we view ourselves and yeah. how we view our bodies, etc. The effects of puppies and lollipops on our psyche. Yeah, but uh, you know, not everything was necessarily um, you know people in the next room dying. So, sure. Yeah. Uh, but we referred to a term at the beginning of this episode, which is serenoid, and this also comes from Stanley Milgram, I believe, from un published results of Correct. some experiments he conducted, right? Right. He, uh, he never published any of these. They ended up, uh, you know, uh, putting some work into it, but then going off in a different direction with his research. Yeah. So as we said, the term serenoid comes from Cyrano de Bergerac. But what was the deal with Milgram's experiments? So Milgram essentially wanted to see, hey, if you're that uh, the woman that is being wooed by right. by, uh, by, uh, by 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 uh, Cyrano's uh, meat puppet, his um, handsome, his meat handsome puppet. young right. man. I think her name was Roxanne. Roxanne. So yeah. Roxanne's on the balcony being wooed by a handsome meat puppet that's being fed lines by Cyrano. Yeah. If you're Roxanne, would you be able to detect something was weird? Would you Would you encounter this young man and say, hmm, he, you know, he seems a little 
more clever than uh, than he should be, or there's a delay in in what he's telling me. You know, would there be something that would tip you tip you off to the to the deception? You know, with modern technology, I'd imagine you could carry out that experiment pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, even uh, at the time, uh, the technology was good enough. Uh, so, in these unpublished experiments, he had a source speak into a microphone, and a shadower listened through a hidden earpiece. Then he or she would repeat whatever they heard, you know, basic, uh, you know, arrested development surrogate kind of situation. Uh, but here's the thing. He found that with practice, uh, speech shadowing becomes easier and easier. Like yeah. We really take to it rather naturally. They say it's not that hard at all. I, I read in one of the sources we use for this episode that sometimes it only takes a few milliseconds yeah. to, of delay between the speech being fed in through the earpiece and saying it. We're ready, willing, and able to not think for ourselves. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, he observed that uh, he, he set all this up, put people in motion with these, uh, with a source and a shadower, and then a test subject having to interact with this individual, or as it is, in- individuals, mm-hmm. um, and then give feedback about what they thought. And he observed that people couldn't tell the difference yeah. between a serenoid, again, that person, uh, that, that, uh, that shadower who is informed by another source, uh, and just repeating words that are uh, entering uh, his or her ears, uh, could not tell the difference between a serenoid and a normal human being during interactions. Yeah, so that's what Milgram reported. And I don't know, that's surprising and creepy. Yeah, I w- I would think that I would easily be able to tell the difference between a person speaking of their own free will and somebody who's just being fed lines in an earpiece. Yeah, in one experiment, Milgram sourced, in other words, fed uh, you know lines to a pair of eleven and twelve year olds. So they the eleven and twelve year olds were the shadows, and Milgram himself was speaking. Correct. Uh, yeah, the, the the children were the the serenoids, if you will, uh, and a group of observing teachers never suspected that they were chatting with anything other than a normal, though very bright, child. Uh, and he, <laughs> and, uh, and in and in his experiments, he found that most people could have a lengthy twenty minute conversation with a serenoid without noticing anything amiss. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, th- again, that's that's hard to believe. I mean, it just seems like you'd be able to notice that right off the bat. But well, but just think how easily we. We buy into an actor's presentation. Think mm-hmm. of, and think of all the interactions we have in the course of uh, uh, of our lives, where the, the individual we're talking to is maybe not completely uh, genuine. Mm-hmm. Maybe that you know, maybe you're interacting with a with someone that's doing customer service, or they're trying to sell you something or con you, etc. It like it's not always going to come off as oh, this person's completely fake. It's going to it's just a, an, an aspect of human interaction. Well, it's funny you mention actors because I had this thought when I was reading this research. In a strange kind of way, all actors in movies are serenoids. Yeah. Like you, you have the writer coming up with lines for many types of characters that aren't anything like them outwardly at all. Like you could have, you know, you know, a 65-year-old female writer writing lines for a 10-year-old boy in a yeah. play. And that boy effectively is a distanced serenoid. And should we be able to tell the difference? Like, sometimes you can. Sometimes you watch a movie, you know, and you're like, kids wouldn't say that. That's not how kids talk. But yeah. other times you buy it. Yeah, well, I think one of the things to keep in mind about serenoids and ultimately about echo borgs as we move uh, forward is that we're, we're de- dealing with a hybrid personality. So mm-hmm. there's the, there, there are the words and the personality of the individual who is informing. And then the words of the shadower or the serenoid, 
that individual is bringing their own delivery, their own personality to it. Sure, because your personality, as you present it outwardly, is way more than the words you say. Yeah. Obviously, it's your body language, it's your expressions, it's, you know, the way you carry yourself. I mean, that's all part of the message you present. Like, we can all think of, of movies or TV shows where there's a, a particularly gifted actor who's able to bring uh, lackluster lines to life in a way that a less gifted actor just would not be able to achieve. Yeah. I always think of Raul Julia in Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, who, <laughs> you know, some people, you know, it's easy to have a lot of fun with his performance. It's, you know, it's kind of cheesy and outlandish. But that man in that movie, which is like a, you know, a, a low-budget uh, PBS adaptation of a, of a science fiction story, mm-hmm. He brings so much life to every line. So many lines in that uh, in that film, uh, if, if they were delivered by a lesser actor, would have just fallen flat. But he makes even the, the most pointless line uh, just really land. I, I agree. And I think this is a common feature actually in older actors. I mm-hmm. see this way more commonly with actors who have been in the business for a long time. I think of Star Wars Episode Two, which um, my opinion is that that is a horrible, horrible movie. Uh-huh. When Christopher Lee shows up and starts talking, the writing, I think, is just as bad as it's been the entire time. But suddenly I'm, okay. I'm listening. Yeah. (laughs) Christopher Lee, I'm buying it. He is really selling this horrible dialogue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in that respect, Raul Julia, Christopher Lee, they would make wonderful serenoids. And keep them in mind, they might have made excellent Echo Borgs. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, back to the Echo Borgs. Okay, so Robert, at yes. the, we were talking about echoborgs being the natural extension of serenoid. So the serenoid is a person being fed lines by another person. The echoborg, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, would be a person being fed lines by a computer program. Yes. I want to know, are there any studies where people have looked into this phenomena? And if so, does a person delivering the lines from a chatbot make the chatbot any more convincing in the Turing test? Oh, indeed. uh, That's uh, exactly what we're going to look at in this uh, half of the podcast. Okay. Uh, Particularly the work of uh, two individuals, uh, British social psychologists Kevin Cordy and Alex Gillespie. And uh, basically we have two studies that we're going to analyze here. A 2014 study where they essentially just recreate some of Milgram's work mm-hmm. and uh, and look at the uh, at the serenoid. Yeah. And then a 2015 study that uh, just came out um, where they take the serenoid, apply it to chatterbots, and give us the Echo Borg. Yeah. So the script we read earlier from mm-hmm. the the conversation between the Echo Borg and the regular interactor that came from London School of Economics research. It was a YouTube video that they'd put up. So that was their Echo Borg saying that it liked fruit trees and that the Imitation Game was its favorite movie. You know, and I do want to throw in like that was a dead giveaway that it was a robot because n- that that movie is nobody's favorite movie. Right. And I think Rose, the chatbot in that example, is sort of programmed to be playful, like mm-hmm. not necessarily to be entirely convincing as a human because Rose gives other playful answers. Also in that same video, there's a part where the human interactor says to the human Echo Borg, do you like food? And the human Echo Borg delivers the line, yummy electricity. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know if, uh, so if comedy needs you know, to be a primary uh, programming of function. I mean, you know, humor is an important part of any human interaction. Sure. Th- I mean, that's good humor for a chatbot, but <laughs> that's obviously the ch- a chatbot who's not trying all that hard to hide it. Yeah, being a little little too coy. All right, so let's look at this uh, the, the work of uh, Cordy and Gillespie. Um, in 2014, they published this paper in the Journal of Social Psychology, and they uh, essentially set out to uh, to replicate uh, Milgram's work. Okay. So the basic setup here is they they had a shadower uh, set in an interrogation room. So that's the serenoid type right. figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were engaged in a conversation with an interactant. This is a, an unsuspecting volunteer. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the source, that's the individual feeding the shadower, feeding the uh, serenoid, um, they're in another room, and they're observing everything through video and audio links. Mm-hmm. And they tell the shadower exactly what they, they need to say through a, uh, you know, a discreet FM radio transmitter setup. Okay. So they have 20 volunteers that are engaged in 10-minute conversations with the serenoid and 20 additional volunteers that are tested in a control setting. Okay, so the control setting is just a regular person talking, not being fed lines. Yeah. And so this backed up exactly what Milgram had told us uh, uh, decades earlier, that when one human parrots another human's words, we just totally buy it. Okay, so even if you were skeptical of Milgram, and who knows, you might have had reason to be, we've got a, we've got a new study backing that up now. And right. And th- the, the implications of this are kind of creepy. It's that unless you check in people's ears to make sure they don't have an earpiece in there, anybody in your life could be feeding you lines from somebody sitting in a van outside the building, and you might not know it. Yeah, I mean, look at the movie The Exorcist, right? Uh, <laughs> that's why demons, when they possess people, they have to spit uh, you know, green vomit across the room and spin their heads around, because otherwise we're just not going to buy into the fact that an individual is not uh, functioning of their own free will. Right, or you know, you've got the problem of, okay, so the priest tries to go to the authorities and say, I need to conduct an exorcism. My evidence is this person was speaking in a language they've never learned. It's like, well, how do you know they're not being fed that language from somebody in a van outside the <laughs> building through an earpiece? You've got to have the pea soup. Well, you know, speaking of possessed children, uh, a second part of the same experiment, Cordy and Gillespie, um, used a 12-year-old male actor to serve as a shadower, while a 37-year-old male social social psychologist acts as the source. And again, no one suspected the illusion, though some thought the children might have been coached prior. So there was a little, you know, trepidation there where they think, uh... I think somebody was preparing this kid for this conversation. So they picked up that something was off, but they didn't pick up that the kid was being fed lines. Yeah, and again, that just kind of jives with with so many interactions most of us have in our lives, where you you talk to somebody and you might think, that person seemed kind of fake. But you're not thinking, that person was serving as a meat puppet for an AI or some dude in a van. You just think, ah, oh, they were, they're a little phony. They're, you know, they have some sort of an agenda. They're kind of playing the room or they're, they're in just full on customer service mode, et cetera. Or they might just be experiencing some anxiety and awkwardness. I mean, I think you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And that's, I think, coming through in some of these experiments. If somebody acts a little awkward or weird, I mean, you don't want to just judge them and say, ah, <laughs> oh, that person's a robot. You know, they're being fed lines or something like that. I mean, <laughs> you know, we understand that some people get in moods. They have trouble sometimes. They feel awkward. We've all felt like this. Mm-hmm. And you want to be accommodating of other people's awkwardness whenever possible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, awkwardness is in its own in its own right is an essential part of human interaction. Right. Um, and if, a, if an AI or a computer wanted a part of legitimate human interaction, they'd need to sign up for some serious awkwardness from time uh-huh. to time. So 
this initial study pretty much backs up everything Milgram told us. Yeah. So from that point, um, Cordy and Gillespie moved on to artificial intelligence, to chatterbots, and the creation of the Echo Borg. And again, an Echo Borg is essentially the same as a Serenoid, except the shadower is speaking the words of a chatterbot. Yeah, so the source is not human, it's a computer program. Right. And again, this is what this is, it's important to keep in mind that uh, a Serenoid is a hybrid personality. The, mm-hmm. the individual behind the speaker and then the personality of the speaker coming together. So an echo Borg, the Borg aspect of that, referring to cyborg, it really is a, a new type of cyborg that we're playing with here. Uh, a, a machine and a human as one. And the question presents itself, would we be fooled? Will we observe an echo Borg in action and, and suspect that it's a machine will behind the human face. I'm going to say that even before I read the results of the study, when I knew what the subject was, I thought, you know, I bet it depends heavily on the sort of pre-priming of the study participants. Mm-hmm. Like, are they expecting to be interacting with somebody who might be an Echo Borg, or are they, or are they just going in blind and interacting with somebody who might be a little weird? It's true. I mean, when you're presented with the po- if you're presented with the possibility, hey, you might be talking to a robot here, fifty-fifty chance mm-hmm. that, you know, that's gonna it's get, that's gonna alter your perceptions a bit. Yeah. So, what did they find? First of all, this is how the study rolled out. Forty-one participants in the experiment were shown a text messaging client with two windows, and told they'd be interacting with two human shadowers at the same time. One shadower is sourced by another human. The other is sourced by a chatterbot. Mm. And each interrogator asked questions via text. Then the, the participants were told they'd be asked which of the two agents was a real human. Now, the researchers also wanted to compare human and text responses, so they divided the group into two groups. Twenty of the participants typed their half of the conversation in, into a text client, uh, but got responses from the two Echo Borgs sitting in the same room. The other 21 participants just had text chats the whole way through. So this way they would have a, you know, a base comparison to the, uh, you know, the more established chatterbot Turing test situation right. that we just laid out earlier. Just typing into a terminal. Right. So the results were that all the text-only participants correctly identified the real human. So again, dead giveaway based on just the limitations of the chatterbot. Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy to tell that you're just talking to a program. Yeah, if you if you have enough time to talk to them, you can almost definitely trip them up. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, in the other setup, only two of the participants didn't identify the real human. So, in the Echo Borg situations, they still weren't too terribly convincing. Right. So they can tell the difference between a Serenoid and an Echo Borg. Everybody except two of them could. Right. So it seems that human or not. It's still rather easy to identify the machine behind the flesh. You know, I would chalk this up probably just to the poor quality of today's best chatbots. Yeah, I mean, because even even a Raul Julia or a <laughs> or a Christopher Lee, you know, presented with uh, with the dialogue we were uh, using earlier, they're they're not they're just going to come off as a doll person at best, you know. Right. There's no way you can sell the line "I like fruit trees." In a way that makes people think you're you're being fed lines by a human. No matter how good of an actor you are, that's a dead giveaway that the machine does not know what to do with what you just said. Yeah, unless you're a toddler speaking that line, or or again, if you're hiding it behind, say, some sort of mental deficiency or or language gap, um, or some sort of you know 
character uh, that's leveled over everything, mm-hmm. it's going to be a dead giveaway. But the Echo Borgs certainly made the machine seem more human. In the text-only group, the chatbot received an average uh, humanity rating of 2.14 on a scale of 1 to 10. In the Echo Borg group, the average was a 4.05. So, significant difference there. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So, we can still tell that a Serenoid is more human than an Echo Borg, but an Echo Borg is more human, at least in a qualitative evaluation, than a text-only chatbot. Yeah, to lay it out, text, text-only chatbot, 2.14 humanity. Uh, the Echo Borg, 4.05 humanity. And then the Serenoid had a humanity rating of 8.76, 8.15. So it sounds to me like even a normal human interaction, like if, you score, if you're scoring a 9, just in straight-up, non-augmented human interactions, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So it does prove that there is a humanizing effect to the Echo Borg um, system. It's just the the limitations of existing chatterbots that are, right. that are coming into play. Right. It makes you think if there were a really good chatbot out there, the Echo Borg might be that finishing touch, that final push over the edge of the cliff. Yeah. To sort of make the, you know, the perfect android. Yeah, kind of a bridge for the uncanny valley. Yeah. You know? Like, you just, just, all you need is just a little acting on top of this to really bring the script to life. Now, they, uh, they also conducted a second experiment in this, uh, to, and they tested to see if 58 new participants would guess whether they were talking to an Echo Borg or a person pretending to be an Echo Borg. So, uh, you know, obviously a person who's actually fed their lines by a chatterbot or someone who's just playing around and pretending to be speaking the words of a chatterbot. Right, so this is a reverse Turing test. Can you pretend to be a machine? Right, but here's the catch. They're both pure Echo Borgs. There, there's, no, so, there's no fake Echo Borg, but the, but the uh, individual being tested, they think that one of the two Echo Borgs is just a person pretending. So 79% of the 28 participants who faced an Echo Borg through, uh, thought the person was just mimicking, uh, mimicking a chatbot. So they seemed fake, but not inhuman. So if there is, you know, some reason to believe that this is just a person being a little fake and putting on a show versus being, you know, a complete echo borg, mm-hmm. we're still going to give them the benefit of a doubt. Interesting. Now, I, I think we should uh, do our duty and hedge a little bit, say all these sample sizes were pretty small. And it would be interesting to see more research along these lines, like with bigger sample sizes and, and trying to re- repeat these results. And in the end, also to your point, is chatterbots improve? It's mm-hmm. going to be interesting to see Echo Borgs employed as a, as a way to test them, and in fact, that's something that's pointed out in the in the study is that like, this is a, a great way moving forward to continue to analyze the chatterbots. Yeah, but also as we mentioned, the people who are interacting with these uh, with these serenoids and Echo Borgs were in some of these cases primed to expect something weird because yeah. they're in a test environment. You can't hide the fact that you're in a psychological test and you, you know, <laughs> whenever you're part of a test group, you're sort of like ready for some weirdness, you know. Now, I wonder how this would be if you sprung these shadowers, these serenoids and these echo borgs on people in a purely social scenario, mm-hmm. like a, like we talked about at the beginning, a convention or, you know, a workplace meeting or, uh, a party where people weren't expecting anything strange to be going on. Right. Until they uh, they have to fill out a survey after they leave the dinner party. Uh-huh. So what did you think of Susie and her anecdotes? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know why she was so into fruit trees. She wouldn't <laughs> shut up about it. 
I mean, gardening's okay, but yeah. <laughs> now, what, something that really stood out to me when we were going over this, especially when you start thinking about the Echo Borg and what it would like to, what it would be like to be an Echo Borg, mm-hmm. and the sort of pros and cons of being an Echo Borg, of 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 giving life to this will behind your will. It reminded me a lot of transactive memory, which comes into play uh, really in two key areas. First of all, it's the method by which we've always stored information in other people. Okay, yeah. So you know those facts that you never remember because your spouse remembers them? Mm-hmm. Or it's that, or it's a particular spelling or a bit of trivia that you never keep in your own head because you always look it up on your smartphone? Right. It's the same thing. Yeah, so outsourcing of memory. I, I, I think this this must be one of your favorite topics. You, you, <laughs> you come back to this a lot, and I think it's really interesting that. Well, because I see it every day in my own life, and yeah. after I read about it, it's like it's it's all I see. It's like mm-hmm. the things that I forget, the things that I my mind refuses to learn because I've outsourced it to the ubiquitous technology. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think the story is that, uh, you know, Socrates was worried about this, right? That, uh, if, we, oh, you know, if we teach everybody writing and we have, we're <laughs> writing on scrolls all the time, nobody's going to be able to remember anything. You're yeah. not priming your memory. There might be some truth to that, but then again, are, are we not just, you know, by writing things down and having internet archives and things becoming cyborgs in a way? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a in, sense, the, the voice is already whispering in our ear. Yeah, I mean, you could look at it as a weakening of the human mind, or you could look at it as a technological upgrade of the human mind. Yeah, to what extent will we all become echo borgs of a type? You know, where instead of it being a situation where I'm just going to be a conduit for a powerful artificial intelligence, what if it's more like I want to augment my existing self, which I think is pretty good, with, uh, say, uh, you know, an artificial intelligence that'll feed me the right lines in like business situations or social situations so it's uh, you know less focus on i'm just going to be a meat puppet but rather can i merge with this ai maybe even just a small percentage you know mm-hmm. 5% ai and become a better person a more effective person yeah and these experiments all these examples are are word for word dictation mm-hmm. so whether it's the uh the shadower of the of the serenoid type being fed lines by a human or the shadower of the echoborg type being fed lines by a computer it's all lines you're mm-hmm. getting full sentences and you're just trained to say them as fast as you can I mean, I wonder if this setup could be more conceptual in nature or, you know, feeding you facts or feeding you sort of feedback on the progress of the conversation. It also makes me think about the comedic possibilities, because you imagine an individual in sort of a, you know, very updated uh, Cyrano kind of story story where an individual goes into a business situation and they thought they loaded, uh, you know, business helper 401 into their uh, into their their mind box. But instead, they put Lothario 4.1. Exactly. Yeah. Romance. Yeah. So suddenly they're they're fed all these really effective lines uh, if you were, you know, in a bar. Mm -hmm. But instead, you're, you're throwing them out there in the business meeting. Yeah. I think it could work. I'm as not a, sure what long view. walks on the beach have to do with the new rollout. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it comes to mind um, Black Mirror, the uh, the British uh, television series that does such a fantastic job looking at uh, 
the ramifications near future of our modern technology, often with very troubling results. Yeah. The Christmas episode they recently did. Uh, Which I have not seen yet. I think that's the only episode I haven't seen. Yeah, I don't think it's made it to like Netflix here in the States yet. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but the initial setup involves uh, one character who uh, who offers a, a Cyrano uh, de Bergerac uh, kind of um, service to uh, individuals out there who need a little help with their uh, their pickup game. I, I Number one, that's super creepy. And number two, I can totally see that being a real thing. Yeah. I, I don't find that out outlandish at all. Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about Black Mirror is that, uh, you know, the, it's, it leans in the sci-fi direction, but not too far. Like it's, yeah. and, and, and that it's perfect science fiction because it speaks to the the problems that we have today and and how we are viewing the the problems to come exactly if you want to see some disturbingly plausible dystopias watch black mirror yeah but uh you know it it, it ultimately leads to the question echobot echoborgs is this a dystopian idea or is it a a pretty cool idea <laughs> is it is it ultimately a utopian idea where it it would allow us to to be better individuals. I don't know. I mean, would the ancient philosophers look at our relationship with the contents of our computers and the web as a horrible dystopia? I mean, it feels fine to me, but would they look at that and say, oh, you know, react the same way as we do to a Black Mirror episode? Probably. I mean, also, they would look at our pants and say, what are they doing? Where are their toes? Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, dressed like a Persian. I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. And ultimately, that's a question we'll throw out to the listeners. You know, what, how would you accept that job offer that we laid out at the beginning of the episode? And and furthermore, would you augment yourself with some sort of mild Echo Borg system? Again, like a you know a romance uh, one hundred and one or a business uh, business strategy one hundred and one kind of program to to feed you the necessary lines or even just ideas or facts that you might need to make it through that uh, business luncheon or dinner date. You know, and another uh, aspect of transactive uh, memory that I want to drive home that, that plays in nicely with the uh, the hybrid personality model of uh, serenoids and, and echo boards, and that is um, cross-queuing, okay? This is when, uh, and, and I imagine a number of you can, can relate to this, is when you're having a conversation with, uh, with say, a, you know, a spouse or a partner, a close friend or family member, and neither of you are quite able to remember something on your own, but when you start queuing each other, the you're able to remember it together right. in a way that you wouldn't, you know, kind of Voltron style, you know, bringing it together and suddenly your combined powers recall that memory. Right. You're sort of pulling the triggers on each other's brains. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to think about that, uh, that scenario, cross-queuing and transactive memory. Yeah, especially um, because if you imagine this AI scenario mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you've got some kind of onboard artificial intelligence that feeds you lines occasionally when you need them. You know, you're not just a parrot for everything it says. but. Right. It's it's an occasional helper. How does it know when you need help? Yeah, you, you would need some kind of some kind of cueing in the conversation, or even just in your mind, for this thing to know. Okay, I'm going to step in. Like every time you go, hmm, and then it starts <laughs> feeding you the lines. Like he's stalling, throwing some throwing some good uh, some good lingo there. Every time you say the word interesting, interesting. <laughs>
All right, so there you have it. Uh, a strong episode. I think, uh, I think one that, that continues to resonate with listeners. We actually heard back from a number of people on this, including, I, b- I believe, one listener in particular was really excited about the prospect of this actually happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he really wanted to know how he could be an Echo Borg. And yeah. unfortunately, we had to tell him, well, it's, that's not a profession yet. Yeah. Though maybe you could sign up for a study. Yeah, hopefully so. I hope, I hope that guy has found, uh, uh, a place, uh, to hook him up. All right. So, uh, hey, you want to uh, find out more about this topic and other topics? You want to see what other podcast episodes uh, we've recorded? Uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find some videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our social media accounts, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. Give us a follow. On Tumblr, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Also, uh, hey, wherever you listen to us, be it iTunes, be it Spotify, uh, be be it Stitcher, be it any of the, the various outlets out there, and we get new ones every day. Give us a little love. Give us uh, give us a nice rating. Give us a nice review if uh, the platform allows you to do so. That's a great way to help the show. Absolutely. And if you want to get in touch with us, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 